0: Shalom, and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Rosh Hashanah sermon by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. The year our daughter turned two, we traveled to England for a summer vacation. What was the highlight of the trip? Corgis. Have you met corgis? (laughs) They are irresistible. We spent a week near the castle at Windsor, where a whole royal stable of corgis spends the day just waddling around, just dogs (laughs) waddling. Afterwards, at a nearby souvenir shop, our daughter spotted a salt and pepper shaker set in the window the Queen of England, and her corgi companion. We agreed to buy the set, which became the centerpiece of our dining room. A couple of years passed, and then one Friday evening, just as we finished the blessing over the grape juice, I turned to our son and asked him to lift the cover off of the two loaves of challah. He was two by then. And for no particular reason, he playfully reached for the corgi and barked at the cover, (laughs) whipping it away from the bread. Just like you, we all giggled. The next day, when we got to that moment between the blessing of the grape juice and uncovering the bread, our daughter reached for the corgi salt shaker, she shouted. And a ritual was born. (laughs) My life is saturated in ritual. Jews naturally ritualize. We walk through a doorway, kiss a mezuzah, bam, ritual. Pause before we take a bite of food or a sip of a drink, say a blessing. That's ritual. Our airplane takes off. We say the traveler prayer, also ritual. We have collected a thick menu of Jewish rituals that apply to many occasions. Birth and death, marriage and funeral, coming of age and moving into a new home, even finishing a sacred text. And then there's everything in between. Liminal times that punctuate the everyday and cry out for ritual to mark the moment, but those rituals have yet to be invented or tried or performed. What is the ritual for an infant's first steps? For losing a tooth? For getting a driver's license? For a miscarriage? for becoming an empty nester, for starting menopause, for giving up a bad habit or an addiction, for beating cancer. We don't have a boilerplate congregational email for events on that list. These don't have a go-to curated ancient response, even though people have been losing teeth and mourning pregnancies and growing old since the dawn of time, even though children will always leave the home and disease does not have to be a lonely experience. For all these reasons and more, ritual beckons to us. Stretch me. Use me. Take what has been created and give it life beyond. I do not limit myself to prescribed rituals. I love those rituals, but they are not enough. Life is full of moments that beg for discerning pauses, moments that are ripe for ritual attention. These are the ritual gaps, the moments in our lives that are charged with ritual potential, the ritual blank spaces. They beg us, mind the ritual gap with your imagination, with your soul, and with your vision. Some ritual gaps are lighthearted and sweet. There was the family who wanted to change their kid's name at Herbat Mitzvah because 13 years later, they still thought they had picked the wrong name. <laughs> it happens. Other times, ritual gaps emerge out of purely practical communal need, which happened many times during the pandemic. Take, for example, the creation of the virtual shmirah, where the recently deceased was not left alone but rather guarded By virtue of an online sacred council. But most often, ritual invention is a tender and private exploration, a kind of wondering how to fill a ritual gap that is painful and challenging. I recall a funeral intake earlier this year with several nephews and nieces of a man in his nineties. His siblings had all passed before him, but the children of those brothers and sisters had cared for this man until his death. We were sitting together right before the funeral and one nephew asked rabbi what is done when the last of a generation dies I had nothing to say nothing to offer so what I said was I don't know yet but you're right to notice and we will do something and then there was Erit was sick. That's what the email said. Or rather, she was told that she was about to be very sick, and therefore she needed serious surgery. When we connected by phone, she brought her mama's spirit to the call, which is to say that her mom had died a few years earlier of the same disease. But she hovered with the comfort of a heavy robe. So she was there with us, her mama this graceful soldier who had fallen in a battle against stage four appendix cancer. She sent me a picture of the two of them, long arm wrapped around her mother, the two of them smiling up at me from my computer screen as we talked about suffering. Erit had inherited this suffering, the way she inherited her mom's dimples and passion for serving children. There were two versions of Erit, the tall, strident businesswoman and the one who woke up each morning to debilitating pain in her midsection. The time had come to prepare herself for surgery. There were late night phone calls with her closest friends and lots of therapy, but she also wanted a ritual, a before and an after to move her body from the version of her that might have one day produced another generation with that body to the version of her body that would hopefully live for many years, doing with it different generative things. And she wanted her mom there at that ritual in spirit. To create a ritual, you first have to know what a ritual is not. The Hebrew word for ritual, well, there isn't one. Mm -hmm. Ritual resides in a word desert in Hebrew. A ritual is not necessarily a tradition. A tradition is passed down from one generation to the next, and all rituals start sometime with someone, and they are authentic even when performed in their first generation, even when they are invented by you. So a ritual is already a ritual even before it is a tradition. And rituals are not necessarily customs, because customs can be as broad as the clothing we wear, the food we eat, where rituals have specific tools and in order and prescribed steps. At the Stanford School of Design in the last decade, several social scientists founded a ritual design lab to test the definitions and impact and efficacy of ritual in the sacred and secular realms. Their four-part definition of ritual is the one that guides my thinking as I dissect existing rituals and invent new ones. Number one. Rituals have a magical je ne sais quoi factor. Can't put your finger on it, but a ritual will not feel like an ordinary moment. If it does, it's not a ritual yet. Rituals are mystical, kind of inexplicable. Number two, rituals are done with intentionality, with the person tuned in to this be a special moment. Jews are familiar with this construct, kavanah. Vachya ibn Bakuda taught Prayer without kavanah is like a body without a soul. Ritual without intentionality simply isn't ritual. It's routine. It's mindless. It happened, but you weren't really there for it. Number three, a ritual carries a symbolic value that gives a sense of purpose, and that's beyond the practical. Beyond the practical. What I love about this principle is that it includes practicality, but not practicality alone. Think of netilat yadayim, hand washing. Is it practical to rinse my hands before eating bread? Sure. It's not a bad idea, but that is never its only purpose. And number four, ritual evolves over time to better suit the people and the situation. Rituals are not static. They evolve and they grow. Eventually our corgi salt shaker broke. I know, it was very sad. No, we did not hold a funeral for the corgi, though I did briefly raise the idea. But we got a new set of salt shakers and they're little bright red birds, so now we tweet at the hola cover because all rituals have this tendency to evolve. In the year 1973, during the height of the Chavirah movement, a couple named Michael and Sharon Strassfeld published the first modern baby naming ceremony for a Jewish girl that paralleled the bris or brit milah. This marked an era when we were at peak American Jewish self assuredness about our ability to invent Jewish ritual. Back in 2007, Rabbi Dr. Vanessa Oakes wrote an extraordinary book Inventing Jewish Ritual that rightfully won the National Jewish Book Award. It examined the boom in ritual exploration and expression throughout the last quarter of the 20th century. a stand on the shoulders of Dr. Oakes's excavation of how we got to where we are today with modern Jewish ritual, not just what women saders are, but why women satyrs came to exist. One of the great gifts Oakes leaves us with in her book is a guide for authenticating Jewish ritual. One great subversive aspect of ritual is that its authenticity does not come from its vintage. In other words, the legitimacy of ritual does not necessarily grow from time. Ritual magic can be instantaneous. One of my favorite stories that I tell again and again about ritual authenticity and the passage of time comes from Erica Keswin's book, Ritual Roadmaps. She wrote about this freshman at Northwestern University. The young man, comes up to his provost in tears at the end of orientation week. He expresses his gratitude that he'd been able to participate in the march through the arch, which is this dramatic ritual in which he passed through a space on campus marking his official status as a college student. He says to the provost, I feel so connected to so many generations of Northwestern students. And the provost doesn't have the heart to tell the young man that the march through the arch was invented five years prior. (laughs) So if the passage of time doesn't make for an authentic ritual, what does? Dr. Oaks describes a Jewish ritual toolbox. She says that if at least one of these things is present, and often more than one may be, we've authenticated a Jewish ritual. Number one, a sacred text. Or number two, a ritual object or action. Or number three a core belief or value. These are obviously present in the rituals that we know and appreciate as part of our inherited canon. Lighting candles on Eru Shabbat, for example, involves the first two tools from the box, the sacred text of the blessing, the ritual object of the candlesticks, perhaps the candles themselves. We might even stretch to say that the core belief that this is the very moment in which we accept Shabbat is present as well. That same sense of authenticity is at the heart of new rituals, too. When that group of nieces and nephews asked me how to mark the death of their uncle as the last of his siblings, we started from the shared assumption that we would mark the close of a generation at the graveside. What stood out for this particular burial was the act of shoveling dirt as a non-repayable kindness. This became the cornerstone of our new ritual. Once we'd shoveled enough dirt to cover the casket, the oldest niece in the family stepped forward to add seven additional shovelfuls of earth. With each shovel, she called one of the seven names of the generation now gone. Then I recited the text, Lidor Vador Nagid Godlecha, ul netzach netzachim k'dushatcha and I translated it two ways. From generation to generation, we will speak of your greatness. That is, the greatness of our parents' generation, and also the greatness of the Holy One, And forever and ever, what is sacred about you, we will make sacred. Each sibling then took a small stone to place on their own parents' graves to let them know that they had completed the mitzvah of ensuring that their uncle was properly cared for until his last breath and buried with dignity. (coughs) The ritual worked. There was a ritual gap, no existing ritual for the last of a generation to be buried. And we filled that gap When a ritual works, what it accomplishes depends on the needs of the creator and the participant. Erica Keswin writes that firefighters who cook and eat meals together before they go out on a call objectively save more lives. That is ritual working in a concrete and tangible way. Ritual works in so many other ways as well. It can decrease anxiety, support through transitions, helps group motivation and bonding. It increases creativity. It can improve the quality of an experience. It can release you from an addiction. It can increase your feeling of control. That last one motivates me more often than I usually admit. Ritual is a means of exerting control, where I might otherwise have none. I've sat with people in that place of powerlessness and wondered with them, what now? And what next? I had a congregant who worked on a trial for more than eight months. They poured their entire life into that trial, gave up family time, let their mental and physical health slip a bit, really threw themselves into it, and then they lost. That was on a Tuesday. And Wednesday, they were supposed to show up at the office and go to work. Just go to work like they were okay. That was a moment in need of ritual Something to help this person walk back into their office as a whole professional after a crushing blow. So they tore two pieces out of the old brief. On the back of one page, they wrote, I am but dust and ashes. And on the other, they wrote, the world was created for me. They stuffed each in a pocket. And like Reb Simpa they walked into their office knowing that they could pull out each slip of paper as needed. Ritual does not belong only to recognizably religious moments. Just as a ritual has power in life cycle, it also has power for those firefighters, for that lawyer who lost a trial, and also in moments like welcoming a new roommate, moving a parent into a care facility for the first time. Nor does ritual demand the hand of a clergy person in its design. Each of you, each of you, is capable of scaffolding meaning into the everyday during COVID, I taught the first course of ritual invention here at Beth Am, and I asked participants, what ritual gap are you experiencing right now? For one participant who was in the year of saying Kaddish for her father, she felt that she missed his face. So she created a Kaddish scrapbook, one word per page, opposite one picture of her sweet daddy, Yit Gadal. Dad holding her as a baby. The Yit Kadash Dad when he had so much more hair. (laughs) Shemeiraba, my favorite picture of the two of us together. I didn't make that scrapbook. She didn't need me. She conjured the power of ritual like a sweet, enveloping blanket, a force that was hers to claim. And others do want clergy guidance, and in that case, it's an honor. Back when Erit was facing catastrophic surgery, she wanted to design a ritual hand-in-hand with me. We built a ritual around a, vi- a visit to the mikvah and an immersion in those living waters. She wore a robe that still smelled of her mom all these years later, and she brought two other objects with her. One was a book about daughters that her mom gifted her at the age of 13. And between each dunk, one of her accompanying friends read a poem from that book. The other was a necklace that had once belonged to her mother. After her mikvah dip, Erip brought the necklace into the water to dunk as well, a symbolic transformation into a vessel of good luck that she would now wear around her neck. Ritual begets ritual. As we share ritual stories like this one, the spirit of creativity grows. Last year, a family whose fourth child was approaching bat mitzvah asked what we might do here at Betham to mark the occasion of a final bat mitzvah in that generation of the family. This sparked a joyful project that culminated in the creation of a new art piece for our Torah scroll, which lives right there behind me. Each family whose last child is becoming bar or bat mitzvah is given a square design with a fabric pen on a cover from the Torah scroll that reads and you shall teach them to your children. On the day of the bar Bat Mitzvah, just before we return the Torah to the Ark, we bring the whole family forward, parents standing across from their children. We conjure a Midrash of our ancestor Yaakov and his children, and the parents recite with their children words of affirmation in the form of the Shema. Each time I look out on our congregation watching this ritual take hold, I have enormous hope for the creative the future. I hope, too, that I am giving you a name for a feeling and an experience that is deeply human, the ritual gap. I urge you to grab hold of transitions and willfully slow time. Take these times with the tools of text and action and objects and core beliefs. I challenge you to reach for ritual in moments when you lack resolve. You have my permission to do so without any rabbinic supervision, really. And I am always here and eager to be your guide. This year, I've offered and continue to offer courses on ritual invention and innovation. The next two classes I'll teach are live at the convening of our whole conservative movement in Baltimore in December, where I urge you to join a delegation with our Temple Bethon clergy. And I'll also be teaching online in January for Ritual Well. I maintain a website full of ritual resources, reinventingritual.org. And if you write me after Tov, you'll find that website in my email signature. Last summer, I spent time at Harvard Divinity School gleaning material as I wrote the first couple chapters of a book on Minding the Ritual Gap, and I look forward to finishing that book, God willing, on my sabbatical next June through August. If you have a story of creative ritual that you'd like to share, I would be honored to hear it and perhaps include it in that book. May this be a year in which you reach for ritual, both the familiar and the new, boldly and with affection and hope for all the blessings it may bring. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts.